This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. When you hear cage-free eggs, do you picture hens outside roaming around? Well, that's what those egg companies want you to think. Really, cage-free hens live crammed indoors. Meanwhile, Vital Farms hens are pasture-raised, on actual pastures, with plenty of grass and sunshine for healthier hens and better eggs. Vital Farms pasture-raised. Visit vitalfarms.com coupon and look for us in the black carton at the grocery store. On December 4th, 1998, 21-year-old Yale University senior Suzanne Joven was stabbed 17 times and later died from her wounds. A suspect's name was dragged through the media, though he was ultimately cleared. Her case remains unsolved. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I've been pretty busy, but, you know, it's been good. It seems like a trope that after someone passes away, everyone says how wonderful they were, like all of their rough edges were smoothed out and their flaws were erased. In this case, though, I don't know how many flaws there were to erase. A number of people, family, friends, classmates, instructors, have spoken to the media about Suzanne Joven. And instead of the broad statements about how great she was and how everyone liked her, they have really specific examples of her academic success and her generosity and also her popularity. She really was a phenomenal woman. Her parents are American scientists who emigrated to Germany for work. And Suzanne was born in Lower Saxony and grew up there with her parents and her younger sister, though she also had two older half-sisters as well. In school, she learned two more languages in addition to English and German, and she seemed focused on science as her future path, very much following in her parents' footsteps. She was a serious student, but she also loved to travel, and she really liked to have fun. She would sing in both choirs and in rock bands. She was really was remarkable being able to find a home with whatever group she was in. Susan's mother had gone to Yale, which is a top-tier university located in New Haven, Connecticut. And Suzanne had her heart on going there as well. Now, New Haven isn't a huge city, but it's fairly densely populated, and Yale is the centerpiece of the city. It's downtown, and it's the largest employer of the city. It's not just the colleges that employ people, but also the services provided, including a hospital. The area is also not atypical of any other city. There are good neighbourhoods and bad neighbourhoods and wealthy suburbs not located far away. Suzanne was incredibly excited to go to Yale. During her freshman year, she switched her major away from the sciences and changed it to a double major in political science and international studies. She also started to volunteer as a tutor for disadvantaged youth in New Haven. She had a passion to help people, and her long-term plan was to go to work in diplomatic services. In 1998, when she was killed... She was a senior and was in the process of applying to graduate schools. Also in her freshman year, she met another student named Roman, and they dated all through their years at Yale. 
December 4th, 1998 was really warm considering that we're talking about winter in Connecticut. It actually broke the record for the highest temp on that day. It was 73 degrees, a good 30 degrees warmer than usual. 73 degrees Fahrenheit, that's about 23 degrees Celsius. With the unseasonably warm weather, everyone was outside that day. Having grown up in Connecticut, I can confidently say that we all would have been outside on a day like this. I don't remember this particularly mild winter because I had the wisdom to have already moved to Idaho at this point. And trust me, it was decidedly not warm in Idaho. Suzanne had a pretty busy evening. She had organized a pizza party for an organization she volunteered with. The program paired mentally disabled adults with student mentors to help them with life skills and social skills on a one-on-one basis. This party was for all the mentors and the mentees. After cleaning up and such, Suzanne drove another volunteer back to her house and arrived at her own apartment some point between 8.30 and 8.50. There were witnesses to this, and they told police they invited Suzanne to the movies, but she said she couldn't because she planned to stay in to work on her senior essay. We need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and when we get back, we will talk about the rest of Suzanne's movements that night. Do you have a hard time finding the perfect fitting jeans that are also comfortable? Because I do, and I want to tell you about true religion. The fit is their focus. The precision in the fit is what makes them the most comfortable and flattering jeans on the market. True religion jeans are made with a softer fabric, which is incredibly comfortable, but it also keeps its shape and it won't fade when you wash it. I've had my jeans for a while now and they look fantastic. I went on the website, I was able to pick my jeans based on the fit and the wash, the style that worked for me. They have skinny high-rise bootcut straight leg and retro-inspired wide leg. Are you ready to get the perfect fitting, most comfortable, and most flattering pair of jeans? Right now, True Religion is giving our listeners 20% off your entire purchase. When you go to truereligion.com slash insights, and enter the code INSIGHT at checkout. Do what I did. Go to truereligion.com slash INSIGHT. Enter code INSIGHT at checkout for 20% off your entire order. Suzanne was online from just after 9 o'clock for about 10 minutes, and during that time, she sent an email to a friend. She was either loaning or returning some study books to that friend, And the email was just a heads up that they'd be left in the lobby of the apartment building for her to pick up. But first, Suzanne had to get them back from someone else that she lent them out to. She gave the access code to her apartment in case that friend came by when she wasn't there, which leads me to assume she thought she'd be getting them back sooner rather than later. Again, warm day and warm night, so there was another witness who saw her that night on campus. It was a classmate who stopped a minute to chat with her. The car she used to drive the other volunteer home earlier that evening was borrowed from the university, so she was on her way back to drop the keys off with the campus police, which was at the main entrance of Yale, which is called Phelps Gate. She also expressed being very tired. 
She was wearing a fleece jacket and carried a few papers but didn't have any bag with her. That was at 9.15. About 10 to 15 minutes later, she was seen on College Street. It's not that she was heading away from her apartment so much as she wasn't heading towards it. From Phelps Gate, she could have turned around and walked back across campus, but instead she went out to the road and walked north like she was going around the block to get home that way. She was tired, so you'd think she would have headed directly home, but it's possible it was just a nice night and she decided to take a longer route. The truth is, it doesn't take that much more time to walk the city streets around to her apartment than it would have taken to cut across campus. I mean, it really would have only taken a few more minutes. But it opens up the idea that she had another errand to run. Perhaps she was going to pick up those study books she had told her friend she was going to get back. The person with the books has never been identified, so we don't know if this was in her plans. The phone system within the campus didn't record intra-campus calls, so there's no way to know if she called someone living on a different part of the campus to make plans. Around 9.45, a resident in the East Rock neighborhood heard a man and a woman arguing and then heard a scream. East Rock is a pretty nice area, mostly populated by professors and graduate students. A lot of the houses have been divided into apartments, and it's actually called Grad Ghetto because of the fairly large number of apartments that graduate students live in. But it's really a pretty nice area of the city and has a solidly residential feel, unlike a lot of the areas in downtown New Haven. The streets are well lit and fairly peaceful. The ear witness either didn't look out or they looked out and didn't see anything because 911 wasn't called until 9.58pm and that's when a couple went out for a walk, heard a scream and then ran towards that scream. They found Suzanne lying on the green area between the sidewalk and the street, right on the corner of two roads. This was almost two miles or 3.2 kilometres away from Phelps Gate. Police arrived within minutes of the call and she was rushed to Yale New Haven Hospital, but Suzanne had been stabbed 17 times from behind. Now, there are reports that her throat was cut, but an investigator has said that this is untrue and all her wounds were to her back. The tip of the knife used broke off in her skull, so while the weapon was never found, it is believed to be a four to five inch non-serrated carbon steel knife. She died just before 10.30pm. Suzanne was just 21 years old. The investigation began immediately and the scene was processed three times. One item found with Suzanne's fingerprints on it was a Fresca bottle in a nearby bush. Fresca is a lime and grapefruit flavored soda that is frankly pretty gross, but you're not here for my opinions on Fresca. At the time, the only place in the area that sold Fresca was a Krauser's convenience store near Suzanne's apartment. They would have had security cameras like any other decent convenience store that's open late at night, but it doesn't seem like the police viewed these, or if they did, they just haven't released that information. A witness who saw her earlier just said she had paper in her hand, so it's possible she stopped for the fresca on her way back to her apartment that evening. 
in looking at the map, it's definitely a possible route. It would be interesting to know if she entered or left the store alone or if there was someone with her. There was also an unidentified palm print also on the bottle. It seems accepted as possibly the killer's palm print. Perhaps in the argument, he grabbed the bottle out of her hand and threw it into the bush. But it's also possible that it ended up in the bush as she dropped it while being attacked or trying to get away. And the other palm print is simply the clerk or the stalker from Krauser's. I would assume that the bottle would have a palm print of someone from the store. That makes sense to me. Right. Police searched sewers and had locals with metal detectors search the area as well, but the murder weapon has never been found. Suzanne was fully dressed when she was found, and she was wearing the same clothing she wore to the pizza party earlier in the evening. There were no signs of a sexual assault. Even though she was found with her watch and earrings on and a crumpled dollar bill in her pocket, she didn't have her purse, a wallet or a backpack with her, so robbery was considered in the initial stages. However, they would later find her wallet at her apartment, and the witnesses who saw her that night said that she wasn't carrying any bag with her. Leaving without a purse or a wallet points to the theory that she didn't intend to go terribly far from campus that night. Now, without any evidence of a sexual assault or robbery, they concluded it was likely that Suzanne was attacked by someone she knew or that it was some sort of targeted attack, meaning that killing her was the primary purpose of that attack. Two witnesses saw a man running around the time of Suzanne's murder, A man with an athletic build, sharp features, wearing a green coat and aged somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. There were also reports of a red car and a tan or brown van in the area. One major clue was the timeline. Suzanne was tired that evening, yet only 30 minutes passed from when she was seen at Phelps Gate and when she was found stabbed nearly two miles away. And that's not just two miles, but two miles uphill. If the 9.45 scream was an accurate time and it was her, we're looking at closer to 20 minutes. It's unlikely she was jogging or even briskly walking that night, so investigators believe a car was involved. That would point even more to someone she knew because Suzanne would not have gotten into a car with a stranger. A forensic examination of her jacket included hairs from an animal, and I did read in one place that the animal was identified as a cat. Whether this is relevant to the big picture or not, it's anyone's guess. We know that cats roam outdoors, and she was found on the ground. It's possible the transfer was from the grass, but it's also possible the transfer was from the car she was in. There seemed to be a big break in the case in 2001 when male DNA was found under Suzanne's fingernails. I will say that when I was initially reading about this, I wondered how the DNA got there. There were no signs of a struggle. Suzanne was stabbed from behind exclusively, which made me think this was a surprise attack. She didn't even have scrapes on her hands from falling and trying to crawl away, so how would she have gotten the killer's DNA under her fingernails? But as I kept reading and researching, I realized that she didn't. 
even after testing the sample against some of the suspects, it eventually came out that the DNA belonged to a lab technician who accidentally contaminated the sample. But it took nearly eight years for this to be figured out because that technician retired in 2003, which was before the lab kept the DNA of all the workers on file so that they could check for this. They could check those samples against what they ran in the lab for evidence of contamination. What happened was someone in the lab found a blood sample in the freezer that was labeled as belonging to that lab technician. So they figured they'd enter the DNA into the internal database in case it ever came up that evidence he previously handled was being checked for DNA. And it immediately hit on the DNA from Suzanne. The state had tested 50 people at considerable expense, both time and money, only to end up without their biggest lead. One of the people at the top of the list have his DNA tested when they thought they had DNA was Suzanne's senior thesis advisor, who had fallen under a blanket of suspicion in her death. And by blanket, we mean the thickest, heaviest blanket you could imagine. The police said he was one in a pool of suspects, and the media ran with it. And Professor James Vandeveld became a target of accusations. Of course, his DNA didn't match in 2001, which ruled him out as a suspect. But then in 2009, when everyone found out the DNA evidence was no good, it had been contaminated, he was, in some minds, ruled back in. Now, it's unclear how or why Vanderveld came on police radar initially. He was connected to Suzanne, and it was reported that he lived near where she was found. He was interviewed early on, and it seemed routine enough, but a day or so later, police came back to him. It's possible it was because Suzanne's friends said that she was frustrated with him as an advisor. She had worked hard on her drafts of her senior thesis, and she told them that he wasn't being responsive. She was not going to be able to edit and get her essay done in time for the next reader without his assistance. Vandervelde was known for being an extremely responsive advisor, and she was writing her paper on a topic he was an expert in, so it does seem odd that he wasn't being responsive to her. In a letter to the editor that Vandervelde sent to the Yale Daily News, he defended his actions a bit. Susan had given him the draft before the two-week November break. He did tell her he would read it and get it back to her. He does admit he wasn't prepared for the first meeting they had scheduled, but he was able to get it to her the following day. Hers was only one of several papers he was helping with, and he acknowledges his turnaround wasn't great, but it wasn't outside the normal range for a busy professor. In fact, the day of her death, she had dropped off another draft to him to look over and suggested edits and hadn't mentioned anything to him about being unhappy. As to why her frustration with him would lead to him wanting her dead, Well, that's not the exact angle. The idea is, in October, he wrote her a glowing recommendation letter for her grad school applications, and she'd been working well with him in class and on projects. But then in November, she was complaining he was no longer available and responsive to her. Perhaps they had a falling out in this time that was more personal, like an end of an affair, 
or maybe he came onto her and she rejected him. Police looked into this and there was no evidence there was anything romantic between them. And those who knew her and her relationship with her boyfriend Roman, they didn't believe this to be possible. They also said she never expressed anything about him coming onto her and she certainly would have if this was the case. Vandeveld let them search his car, and no evidence of Suzanne being in the car was found. There was also no evidence that he had recently cleaned the car or did anything else that would tamper with evidence. One witness who had seen that man running from the scene was shown a picture of Vandeveld and later even brought to campus to see him in person, and both times she said he was not the man she saw running. And honestly, he looks nothing like the sketch. We've talked about sketches not being perfect and the accuracy often depends on the person having a feature that stands out. In this case, the man running had a chiseled facial structure that stood out to both of the witnesses, and Vandeville did not have this look. He was also out of the 20 to 30 year age range and did not, from what I saw, look young for his age. He had a rounded face and he looked like he was pushing 40. One witness did point to him or someone who looked like him. Remember when Suzanne was seen walking towards her apartment, but in that roundabout way, and a blonde man with glasses was behind her? The witness who saw her was watching the news a few days later when she saw a picture of Vandeveld, and she said that he looks very much like the man walking behind Suzanne. Vandeveld offered to take a polygraph, but the police never took him up on this. Then a year later, they told the New Haven Register, which is a local newspaper, that they had 10 suspects and they wanted Vandeveld to take a polygraph, which was the same thing he had already offered to do that they turned down. Through his lawyer, he basically told them to kick rocks. He had attempted from day one to cooperate, and what he got out of it was his name in the papers as a suspect. Yale canceled his classes for the spring semester, saying it would be a distraction to the students, and then at the end of the semester, they let him go. He is the only one of the 10 potential suspects that they chose to call out by name. It's clear they thought he was the killer, and I think their tunnel vision made them try to force it to fit, even though the evidence wasn't there and it still isn't there. The fact that they only named Vandervelde make me think that maybe there was no quote-unquote 10 other suspects. I think it's quite a big possibility that, as you said, Tunnel Vision, they were only looking at Vandervelde and anyone outside of that they weren't even considering. In 2001 and 2003, Vandervelde sued the city of New Haven and Yale University He eventually won $200,000 in damages from New Haven, but the amount Yale paid is unknown. City payouts are public record, but private universities are not required to disclose. In addition to the absolute havoc this caused on Vandervelle's reputation, it may have hindered the investigation. Not only is there the concern that police didn't follow leads that pointed away from Vandervelde, as we have already said, Public opinion was also being pushed towards him as being the killer. Now, is it possible that potential witnesses did not come forward assuming they were mistaken because they were so sure that he did it? Quite possibly. So there are three people authorities still want to talk to. 
When the 911 call was placed, someone in the car was heard on the call asking if the couple who called needed help. The person then left the scene and police want to ask him if he saw anything suspicious. They also want to identify and talk to the person who Suzanne had loaned the stunning materials to. And finally, there is a vague report about a woman who took a taxi around 9.30 that night along a similar route that Suzanne may have taken and police want to talk to her. But here's the thing, how do they know about this woman? Did a taxi driver tell them or did they look through receipts trying to see if Suzanne took a taxi somewhere? But if they did that, they could just ask the driver if he or she saw something. Or did this come out of a rumour that someone saying that they saw something when they were driving by in a taxi? We don't know the why here. We only know that they are looking for this woman, not her relevance to the case or how they got on her track. I think we could even entertain the idea that they think she may have actually been Suzanne, but they want to investigate the possibility that it was someone else. But here's the issue with looking at these witnesses. The area around Yale is very much a college town, and college towns are known to be transient. Waiting two or three years to look for these witnesses means that they could be anywhere. They could have graduated or they could have been professors who moved on to new jobs elsewhere. But the thing is, we're not talking about two or three years here. We're talking eight, nine, ten years and now 20 years. If not Vandeveld, then who? Suzanne's boyfriend had a rock-solid alibi. He was on a train at the time. Some believe that a former student was responsible. Online, he's known as Billy, which is a pseudonym. He was a student at Yale with significant mental health issues and issues with addiction. He had previous violent outbursts, particularly directed towards women. He felt rejected him. And he told people both that he was obsessed with Suzanne's murder and that he thought he would be arrested for murder before his suicide. And yes, Billy committed suicide. From what I read, it sounds like he drove his car off the highway and then got out and purposely walked in front of traffic. It's hard to know where what Billy says comes from because he had such severe mental health issues. And if he focused on Suzanne's murder and didn't have a strong grasp on reality, he may have been dealing with paranoia. He did deny involvement in Suzanne's murder to a friend, but again, we don't exactly expect random confessions from people. It's said that he resembles the sketch of the man running away from the scene. According to one witness, Billy's mother admitted that she deleted his emails and computer files after his death. Another possibility is that Suzanne was being stalked by someone. Possibly it was even a fellow student she would have been familiar with, so she would have been happy to take a ride with him. The tan or brown van that was seen was parked. Some believe that may have been the car that Suzanne rode in to get to the location and that the driver ran off after the murder. The van wasn't processed until April of 2001, And that was after the police made it public that they were looking for the van and they somehow found it. It has been processed, but no information has been made public. 
the van was unregistered, but you would think using the vehicle identification number they could backtrack ownership, but again, we don't know if anything came of it. We don't even know if the van was ever proven to be the one on the street that night. Is the idea that the man drove with Suzanne to the spot and then killed her, running away and leaving his vehicle behind? It's possible if he knew the van couldn't be traced back to him and he felt he could get away and hide faster on foot, he would have been happy just to leave the van there. The case of Suzanne Joven really suffered, in my view, by tunnel vision. The police believed her advisor was involved, and they followed that rather than letting the evidence lead them. Vandeveld's name appeared in the paper just four days into the investigation. So we know this zeroing in on him happened early. It wouldn't be until 2013 that it was announced to the media that he was no longer considered a suspect. A Freedom of Information Act request was filed by two documentarians, and the city wants to withhold the file. Now, in order to withhold the file, they have to justify why it can't be released. It isn't uncommon to refuse to release the files from an unsolved case, but it's been 19 years, and the case was determined to be a cold case 13 years ago. So even though it's unsolved, cold case information is usually not exempt from FOIA like that. In justifying the denial of the FOIA request in the autumn of 2017, they stated that the case is actually an active investigation. A few things they're doing, according to their denial of the FOIA request, is testing Suzanne's clothing for touch DNA, interviewing witnesses, interviewing classmates and friends, and possibly bringing in federal authorities. After 19 years, it'll be interesting to see if they can make up for the lost time and the faded memories. 